Today we continue our series on the Bible postcards, those one-page books of the Bible. The final one of them is the next-to-last book in your Bible, in the English Bible anyway. It is the book of Jude. This one is the most cryptic of the postcards. Indeed, arguably, though it's only one page long, maybe the most, one of the most difficult books of the whole Bible as far as things that are meaty and difficult to understand. This one certainly has more of those than the other postcards combined. Uh, indeed, this tiny book contains um, more deep stuff than many books much longer than itself. To hear most sermons and most discussions of the Bible, you might get the idea that the book of Jude contains nothing except its final two verses. They are the great friend of every pastor who is needed to sound spiritual at the end of the service. Now to him who is able, and we'll go on, we'll get there in due time. Um, But this is a special occasion for me to talk about Jude today. No, I, I, I've done it before, but this is something, the beginning of something that I wanted to do for almost 50 years. I have preached on Jude, I've preached all the way through it in one sermon, and I've um, done it in up to three sermons, and even when I did that, I felt squeezed for time. So Lord willing, this is going to be the first of a seven-part series on this book. Scott Basolo and I are going to team up on you, and we are going to wallow, splash, splash, frolic, and rejoice through the book of Jude. The little secret is, we planned this many months ago, and I thought, hey, what a great run-up for that to talk about the other Bible postcards, and it happened to fit exactly into the amount of time we had after Ephesians. Sometimes I think somebody else plans this stuff. Now, I mentioned that it was something happened almost 50 years ago. I was in a Greek exegesis class in seminary taught by the legendary Dr. Robert Thomas. Dr. Thomas is arguably the finest New Testament scholar of the 20th century. I fancy that when Dr. Thomas arrived in the presence of the Lord, September 6th of 2017, that he was immediately asked questions by people who had studied the New Testament over the last nearly 2,000 years. Well, one day in our class, uh, Dr. Thomas said that If any of us were looking for a master's thesis topic, that he would love to see someone write a thorough exegetical commentary on the book of Jude. Well, I was one of three who stormed up to him after class to uh, volunteer, and I'd hoped he would pick me. Well, it turned out he said, I I think there's enough for all of you. But soon one uh, changed his mind. He wound up writing a very good thesis, but for a different professor in a different department. And the other two of us dug in. We both produced theses. And as it turned out, the other guy wrote on one aspect of the background of Jude, not even everything about the background. He devoted himself to answering whether Jude quoted from Second Peter or whether Peter quoted Jude. My thesis 
ended up with the catchy title, The Identity and the Sin of the Angels in Jude 6 and 7. It has sold zero copies worldwide since then. But it is in a library. Uh, At the rate that my friend uh, Imani and I handled our theses, that detailed exegetical commentary on Jude would end up being over 2,400 pages. This is a special book. Now, I don't mean we're going to write a 2,400-page commentary. But my task for for today is to get us started. So I'm going to do two things, the background and the beginning. We're going to plow our way through a whopping two verses of this book. For the background, we'll start with the standard five why or five W questions. Who, what, when, where, and why. Look at verse 1 of Jude with me. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, first, the who. Jude describes himself in relationship to Jesus Christ and to his earthly brother, James. We'll circle back to that in a few minutes. He is the author of this book. No secret there. It's harder to identify the original readers because they are not described by a place or a time or in relationship to an event held in common with Jude. There are no greetings from one group to uh, another group here. So this is uh, clearly one of the general epistles meant to be distributed generally uh, throughout the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, it clearly is meant for all Christians when he says it is to those who are the called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And we'll also circle back to that in a few minutes. Now we can take an, a cautious, educated guess about who this book was written to. And the, the simple answer is everybody who loves Jesus. But we know that um, there were probably some Jewish believers among the group. And of course, we know Jude was rather Jewish, being a half-brother of Jesus. This book has at least seven allusions to Old Testament history, as well as a quote from a Jewish document that was not part of the Old Testament, but was widely circulated and well-known among the Jews and the Jewish Christians of the first century. We'll learn about the book of Enoch when we get to that part of the book. So uh, we know that Jude's brother James wrote specifically to Jewish Christians. James 1.1 is to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. And then he talks about their faith in, in Christ. So he specifically wrote to Jewish believers. Now you have his brother Jude specifically not using um, primarily Jewish terminology. So um, uh, we, we really do believe that this is meant for, uh, was originally addressed to a group of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, which is to be expected in the latter part of the, of the first uh, centuries, uh, of the first century, I should say. So that's the who. Now the what. Really simple to answer that. This letter is a warning to Christians about false teachers, 
how they influence Christians and churches, and how to resist their influence. That's an easy question. Read through Jude, you'll agree with that. So that's who and what and then when. Well, the fact is the date doesn't matter very much to you and me as far as how we understand the book, but it is a source of debate among the, the scholars. The issue, there's a couple of them. One of them um, revolves around the relationship between this book and Second Peter. You can find some very similar terminology. It looks like one referred to um, the other. And it is a legitimate question whether, Jesus, whether Jude used material from Peter or Peter used material from Jude. The best evidence is that Jude quoted from Peter, which makes this book after Second Peter. Even I can figure out you don't quote things that haven't been written yet. All right? Um, so Jude refers to, and we'll see this in verses 17 and 18, Jude refers to, quote, the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. Now that sounds like Jude is putting himself pretty clearly after the rest of the apostles. And that would make a case for saying that Jude did write after the other apostles, and he specifically is going to refer to Peter, who certainly was one of the original apostles. But um, we know that all the rest of them, except for John, were dead by then. So it seems that Peter was warning of something that was to come, and Jude is saying, it's here. We have to, we have to deal with it. That other master's thesis that I mentioned dealt with that, uh, with um, which of Peter and Jude was the chicken and which was the egg. And the conclusion is Peter is the chicken and Jude is the egg. Well, I don't know. How, how does that one work? I can't remember. Peter came first and then Jude. Peter warned. Jude said it was happening. Now, I believe, therefore, that the letter was probably written between uh, 75 and 80 A.D. Now, uh, Dr. Thomas agrees with me, so I'm right. I mean, there, you never disagree with Dr. Thomas on anything regarding the New Testament and, and win the argument. However, uh, most of the Bible scholars, and probably your study Bible, uh, dates this book at around 68 to 70 A.D., and that could be. It just, we ha- it just has to be after Second Peter for it, to, uh, for it to make sense. But the sole reason that um, people say that Jude has to be somewhere between, somewhere 68, that's because that's after Peter, but before 70 is that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and they say since Jude doesn't mention the destruction of the temple, it has to be before 70. But if you want to apply that, that logic, 1 John has to be before 70, 2 John has to be before 70, 3 John has to be before 70, the Gospel of John has to be before 70, and the book of Revelation has to be before 70. And they are. So you can't, you can't make a dogmatic conclusion about something that isn't said. The point is, um, if you're going to make any point about it, is that Jude didn't mention the destruction of the temple. 
That wasn't the issue because it wasn't the destruction of the temple that had anything to do with the false teachers who were, who, who were coming around. So um, I'm going to stand with Dr. Thomas. Um, I hope I have many more years before I see him face to face and I can say, were you right on that one? Uh, we'll see. Now in the, in the notes that I publish in the, in the bulletin every week and you who are watching online, you can go uh, the same place you're watching this and you can click on... Uh, I think it's called something fancy like downloads and you can get the notes from this. On the last page of that, I included some timelines of New Testament history, the ministry of Jesus, and the dates of the writing of the books of the New Testament. I'm not going to go over that with you per se, but I think it might be helpful for you. It could be one of those things you might want to fold and stick in the back of your Bible for a quick reference if you uh, like to do things like that. Uh, Scott Basolo did something very similar to that Wednesday night with the book of Daniel, and I loved it. So I thought, well, if he's going to do it, uh, I'm going to do it too. Who, what, when, and then where. This one also is not clear. This book has no geographical references to help us. So obviously it isn't necessary for us to know where Jude was or where his first original readers were. From from the book itself and the fact that we know that there were both Jew and Gentile believers among the original readers and we surmise that it was intended all along to be sent around to all of Um, the the churches, um, we can just say it really doesn't matter. Um, Most people seem to think that Jude was probably located in or around Jerusalem. That was the headquarters of the apostles. That's where his brother James was the leader of the church in in Jerusalem. But um, the exact where, we don't know, and it doesn't matter. And the final of the W questions, why? I give this book the subtitle, Beware of False Teachers. John MacArthur wrote a little tiny book on it, and I love his title too, Beware the Pretenders. And the reason is that this book deals with apostasy. Apostasy comes from a Greek word that literally means falling away. Apa is the prefix or the preposition from and stasis or stasis is standing. is to fall away from where you were standing. And it describes a phenomenon mentioned many times in the scriptures. A person may hear the gospel and claim to come to faith in Christ. That person may act for some time like he or she knows the Lord, may become a, uh, an active part of a fellowship in a, in, in a local church, and then eventually turn from him and deny it all. Uh, others may continue as phonies their whole life, and uh, the reality of their spiritual condition may not be known until judgment. This book is a warning to us to be aware that there are such people that they will infiltrate the church and we need to be aware of their influence and know how to deal with them. Now, since I only have two verses and we've almost finished one of them, um, let me show you some of the scriptures that deal with this concept. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now stop right there. 
Okay? There are people who say, Jesus is my Lord, and they don't belong to the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says that. But he who does the will of my Father. In other words, you live up to what you claim, that Jesus is the Lord and you are the slave. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and then listen to this resume, some pretty flashy stuff. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I had shivers down my spine the first time I read that. To wonder, am I, I mean, could I be? Well, the answer to that is, do you want to do the will of God? If you do, you're not one of those. But there are people who are. There's also Jesus' parable of the four kinds of soils. You know, one is a, like hard soil. Seed bounces off the hard soil. The Word of God bounces off of hard hearts. And there are those that there's a soil that receives the Word and it, and it sprouts and blossoms and bears much fruit. And in between, there are two other kinds of soils. And this is what we're talking about in Matthew 13, 20-22. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places... This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. There's that word. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, there are preachers and commentaries, books out there, who try to make those two cases be a category that they describe as Christians who never bear fruit. So they will be in the kingdom, but in this world it won't show that they belong to the king. Well, that, that teaching receives a certain acceptance I wish it was true. All of us know people who claim to know Christ or have claimed to know Christ, but they don't live as if Jesus is Lord. And we want those people to go to heaven. Now, if only that view was correct, if, and there's actually a book I have in my library that uh, uh, came out uh, almost 50 years ago that, um, that, that says that if, for any, at, if at any point in your life, for any amount of time, you declare you believe in Christ, you are saved. Oh, how I would like that to be true. Frankly, as much as I love you, I would spend a whole lot more time going out doing anything I can to manipulate people to say those magic words or repeat a, a, a magic prayer or something so I can get them into heaven. It would be cruel not to if that was true. But that isn't what Jesus meant. He also said every good tree bears good fruit. And if you are abiding in the vine, you will bear fruit, and God will prune you so that you bear more fruit and much fruit. So right after the parable of the soils that mentions a couple of categories of apostates, 
Jesus also told the parable of the wheat and the tares. The tare is the weed that looks just like wheat. And, and during the sprouting and the growth cycle, you can't tell the difference between wheat and tares. Only at the harvest do you find out that you have weeds there. And so there are some who, who, can't, who, who are never exposed in this life, but they fall short. There's a warning about them. Jesus, during his ministry, and a lot of people follow him, and near the height of his popularity, Jesus challenged the faith of some of the people who were following him, who said they believed. He had just said that he is the bread of life, and some people were trying to figure out what he meant by that. They couldn't understand it. And so among uh, to people who were following him, Jesus said this in John 6, 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Verse 66. As a result of this, many, ooh, that's an ouchy word, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus, during his life, had many who said they believed, said they would follow, and they walked away when he challenged them to total commitment. Then there's John 8, 30 through 32. This is at one of the feasts that Jesus attended in Jerusalem. And as he spoke these things, many, there it is again, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, at least they'd said so, now look at this, there's an if-then statement. If you abide in my word, in other words, if you live up to what here. If you live by what you say you believe, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How many times have you heard, you shall know the truth, and, you, and, and the truth will make you free, and you haven't heard the first part of that sentence? Notice that that word truly means that there are falsely ones. There are ones that are false disciples. The Apostle Paul understood this as well. He wrote to Timothy. This is later in Paul's life. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away. There's the verb form of apostate again. They will fall away from the, from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, that isn't even subtle. That isn't even hard to, 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 to understand. Someone who says that, that if, you, if you want to be super spiritual, you have to remain unmarried. Ever heard anybody say that? Ever heard of any groups that say that? That is doctrines of demons. You ever heard of any groups that say you have to eat a certain diet in order to be spiritual? Yeah, they're They're there doctrines of demons. They've fallen away from the faith, which actually sets us free from that kind of legalism. 
Then there's 1 John 2, 18 and 19. John, probably writing after Jude even, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. He'd read Peter. He'd probably read Jude. said, They're here. Many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not, that they are, that they all are not of us. So by the time Jude wrote this, there was good reason to be concerned about doctrines that were being taught by some people who professed to be Christians. Satan has always attacked the church by counterfeiting and by introducing strange doctrines and trying to confuse the issue of who has the authority to even understand and decide upon doctrine. Jude addresses those things head on. That's the background. Now, let's look at the beginning. My entire assignment for today, two verses. Verses 1 and 2. Jude a slave of Jesus Christ, your, your Bible probably says bondservant or something like that. It's the word for slave, and uh, I like the better translation. Jude, a, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, it's interesting how Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. That's a reference to, not to James the Apostle, who was the brother of the Apostle John. Uh, that James had been killed. He was the first of the apostles to be, uh, to be murdered. The James that is the well-known James is James, the brother of Jude, one of the half-brothers of Jesus, one of the natural children born to Joseph and Mary. And Jude identifies himself as the brother of James, and he also calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. So this means that Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. He is mentioned by name as one of Jesus' half-brothers in two places. Let me show you Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 which is practically identical to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. This is a case where people were, uh, some people were challenging Jesus, criticizing Jesus, and walking away. And they're saying this, Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter? I mean, who does he think he is? He's just a carpenter from the little village of Nazareth. Is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, or Jude, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So this means that two of Jesus' half-brothers wrote part of the New Testament. The other one, of course, is the book of James written by 
James. And I'm not sure if you're aware how he introduces himself, James 1.1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think of the background of that. I don't know how many of you grew up in large families. We know there were at least seven children in that family. Jesus, virgin born. After Jesus, at least those four brothers that are named. And it says, and his sisters are here with us. Well, you've got to be at least two to be plural. So there were at least four boys and at least two girls born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus. Now, when you have seven kids, stuff happens. Okay? Now imagine how the younger six would handle it when Big Brother was always right and never sinned. Could there have been just a little bit of resentment there? It could have been a whole lot. We know that during Jesus' ministry, his brothers and sisters did not believe in him. A couple of situations, they specifically tried to get him out of their hair, and one of them, arguably, you could say they were trying to set him up to get killed. Ah, it can be pretty embarrassing when Big Brother is running around saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm God, um, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King who was promised, they didn't buy it. But then he was crucified, and he was buried, and he rose again. And they did believe. So now can you imagine? I I mean, I probably know how I would play that. (laughs) You know, Jesus, (laughs) I grew up with him. That's my brother. You want to hear what he was like when he was in junior high? Uh, yeah, I, I would probably play that up. Both James and Jude call themselves a slave of Jesus Christ. And their claim is that they are brothers in the Lord. You see, once you realize that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again and you trust in Him for salvation, it becomes very clear. He redeemed me. He bought me out of my slavery to sin. So He is the Lord. He is the Master I am the slave. I do his bidding. So as I said, uh, James wrote primarily to Jewish believers. His, his book was likely the first one in the New Testament written. Could have been the, at least the first epistle that was written. This one is clearly intended for all believers in Jesus Christ. Probably the last of the epistles to be written. But as we launch into it, I want you to see that not only is this book a warning. And this book has some heavy-duty, difficult-to-understand and, and right-in-your-forehead kind of confrontation. But it also has great encouragement to true believers in the certainty of our Lord and who He is. And I want to point out to you three ways that Christians are described right in verse 1. To those who are the called, number one, beloved, number two, beloved in God the Father, and kept, thirdly, for Jesus Christ. Called is that primary word there. Actually, the way this sentence is, 
uh, the called is at the end and there's an article at the front which, which means this is all a description of one entity. So I say this is a threefold description of, of um, what it is to be a Christian. Now, you become a Christian, or if, it's, if you are a Christian, you became a Christian when you made a decision to commit your life to follow Jesus Christ. For some, it was a very sudden thing. For some, it was a, a, a gradual thing. But the point is, you have decided to follow Jesus. How did we sing it? Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Based on what Paul wrote. But you need to understand that when you made your decision to follow Christ, that was a result of the work of God to call you to Himself. And this word calling is very significant. You chose God because He chose you. Or as 1 John 4.19 says, we love because He first loved us. Now about this word called, we are the called, the called ones. Understand that the Bible teaches two senses in which God calls people to Himself. There is the, the universal call. This is a call to everyone. Come to Jesus, repent and believe, and you will be saved. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. There's a universal call to salvation. One of the ways that Jesus put it Himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And now bear in mind, He's writing to people that have been buried under this pile of all of these legalistic do's and don'ts. And it was a crushing load. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What do you need to have your soul be at rest? You're delivered forever from the penalty of your sin. Come to Jesus. That's a universal call. Or John seven thirty seven, at another of the feasts. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Does your soul need to be slaked? Come to me and drink of the living waters of eternal life. No one can ever say that he or she is not invited to believe in Jesus Christ. That's one sense of the word calling. <clears throat> the other aspect of calling is what is usually described as the effectual call. That's the work of God when He specifically brings a person to faith and salvation. Now I just thought of a really, really lame illustration. Let's see if it works. Okay, you might be driving down the highway, you might see a billboard that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you go, hmm, that's, you know, hey, that sounds like, a, sounds like a pretty good deal. Then you're driving a little bit farther and your cell phone rings and 
caller ID says Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jim, come now. That's the effectual call. That is God specifically calling individuals to himself. He brings people to faith and salvation. It is the work of God from beginning to end. Remember Ephesians 2? The chapter starts out, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't respond. Get down to verse 5. But God made you alive in Christ. He effectu- effectively, effectually calls people to himself. Romans, <coughs> Romans 8, 29 and 30, just to illustrate, says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And, now listen to this, These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the unbroken chain there? Everyone who is predestined is called, and everyone who is called is justified and glorified. So when he says, you are the called ones, you are the ones that God has brought to himself. Now, I would love to take you on a delightful theological side trip and, and, and show all that to you in depth and breadth, but I won't. But I'll give you a reliable summary. You don't have to believe me on this, but check it out. Every time you see the word call, or a form of it like calling or called, when you see that word in the New Testament epistles, Romans through Jude, all right? Every time you see it in the epistles, the word called, it always refers to the effectual call. Read it that way, and you will never be you will never feel like you're, you're being misled. So, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called. We, are, we have been called into the body of Christ. Now that should thrill your soul because you couldn't get there any other way than by the effectual call of God in Christ Jesus. You can't click, you, you, you can't uh, uh, scrimp and save and claw and gouge and kick and swim and fight and talk yourself into it. It can't be done. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after God. None. You sought God because He called you. Wow. It's His work. It's for His glory. Now look at the second description of a Christian. Beloved in God the Father. God so loved the world. We love because He first loved us. And there's a careful choice of a verb form here that makes it clear that When he says beloved, it means that you have been, you are now, and you always will be beloved by God. File that thought because um, after our mission Sunday next week, then Scott is going to start the the main part of the book of Jude, and you're going to find out he says, beloved, that's who he calls the people here, beloved of God. So that's the noun of direct address there. Be ready for it. Jude, 
a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are, number one, the called, number two, beloved in God the Father, and number three, and kept for Jesus Christ. The third description of your standing in Christ is kept. And again, the wording is precise. The verb tense here, and, and there are about three people in the room that might someday be able to get a little individual goosebump out of this. It's perfect passive. Isn't that thrilling? Now, what that means is that the security of your salvation is completely provided and it is maintained by someone outside of yourself. God. You can't bring yourself to Christ because you're, well, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You also can't keep yourself in Christ because you still have the sin that is in you in the body of this death. The idea that you can lose salvation flies in the face of the character of God. This book deals with some people who might appear to have lost salvation. But the book itself affirms the doctrine of the security of the believer. One of the ways that I've always liked to say it is there is no such thing as temporary eternal life. You can't have it and then lose it and then have it again. Apostates are those who fall away from the faith because they never were of us. 1 John 2.19 If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. When I talk to somebody who does believe that you can uh, lose your salvation, you know, we, we, we know the same person, heard the gospel, came around, part of the church for a while, wandered away, drifted away, and now he kind of denies it. And I say, okay, you believe that that person was lost and then found and saved and now is lost again. Well, it says you're saved by the will of God, so you'd have to believe God changed his mind twice for that to be true. But here's what I would say to that person. Say, we care about this person. And, and they're not living right. So what would you do if you think he is lost? You would go to him. You'd pray for him. You'd preach the gospel to him. You would open up the scripture and show him the error of his ways and call him to give his life to Jesus Christ, right? Now, I would believe that this is a person who never was really of us. So how would I treat this person? I would pray for him. I would go to them. I would preach the gospel to them. I would open the Bible to them and I'd call them to repentance and to turn to Jesus Christ. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Lost and saved. Jude is telling you, you are secure in Christ and boy, do you have an enemy out there. All of that difficulty with the sovereignty of God and calling and election and the security of the believer is that much of the time we can't tell the difference between a wandering, temporarily disobedient Christian who is doing something that he shouldn't do and an apostate who is rejecting what he said he believes. Now, one more quick note here. It's from verse 2. Now, there's a small group of you that might understand what a perfect passive verb is. Now, 
for the super-duper hyper-elect, very special individuals, let me tell you that verse 2 has something unique about it. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. There's, there's one verb there, and the verb would be translated, may be multiplied to you. We can't put it all in English in the order that it is in Greek, because that's all one verb. But here is the really cool thing. This is one of the very few verbs in the entire New Testament that is in the, are you ready for this? I, I think you're prayed up. This is in the optative mood. Wow, you're right, Caroline. Ooh. We don't have this verb form in English. We don't have this. We don't have a way to directly translate this, so we have to circumlocute. The optative mood is, is a verb form that expresses a wish or a hope regarding a certain action. May this be multiplied to you. So just like I said in Second John and like I said in Third John, here's Jude's version of it. He gives you a great way to pray for fellow believers. What better could you ask for than may mercy and grace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy means that you don't get what you deserve. You deserve wrath, but Jesus took the wrath so that you can receive mercy by His grace. Peace means that you're no longer alienated from Him. While you were his enemy, he died for you, Romans 5, 8 through 10. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, you shall be saved by his life. Oh, beloved ones called of God, I pray that your understanding of that will be multiplied every day. Now before we go for today, I, I have two exhortations for you. One is, we're going to be here for a while, Lord willing, a seven-part series and in one interruption, so over eight weeks. I would ask you to please read through Jude a few times. Whatever else you're reading in your Bible, you can add Jude on. It'll add a few minutes to your day. And as you do, it would be great to write down the things that you observe that you'd like to go deeper with, the questions that come to mind, and the things that you, need, you think need further study. I think there's a pretty good chance that your list will become longer than the book of Jude. Why, you might have a 2,400-page list of questions. I don't know. We'll see. That's why we're planning to... We, we just want to marinate ourselves in this book. It will be a blessing. But much more importantly, beyond getting our questions answered, make sure you understand what it means and that it describes you, that you are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. And let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for the privilege that is ours to be in Christ. Father, we are trophies of His grace and it's for His glory.
I ask that you will give us discernment to be able to not only just understand the basics of your word, but to distinguish what is right and true from what is almost right and sounds good. Father, use this book to that end in our lives. And please, if there's anyone here that has not yet heard your call to faith in Christ, bring them to yourself today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.